Please note, Mindful of Everything is shifting from a fortnightly schedule to a monthly schedule. Thank you for supporting the podcast so far, and I hope that this new schedule will bring opportunities for even better content. I'm Agrita Dandrell and welcome to Mindful of Everything, the podcast that cultivates a space for socially and environmentally conscious minds, actively striving to achieve greater ecological and community healing for a safer and healthier planet. Silk is a material that is of great cultural significance particularly for cultures and religions are ancient and have evolved thoroughly over time, carrying forward traditions and customs that have been put in place thousands of years ago. However, with time the human race has evolved substantially as well, and our perspectives have also undergone radical changes. One such change is our understanding of our impact on the planet through the nature in which we consume the resources provided by Earth and how our unsustainable, unhealthy and unethical practices have left the world in turmoil. What once was seen as a symbol of elegance and culture is now seen as a symbol of exploitation. And we're now having to ask ourselves how we can uphold our cultural values with the values of being a sentient being. This episode discusses the ethics, sustainability and cultural significance of silk and why we must address the various problems with the material to better understand how we can protect worker rights and the lives of other organisms, whilst also staying close to our cultures. When we begin to transition from being consumers to ethical consumers, and then hopefully to consumer activists, the nature of our consumption patterns also undergo drastic changes. The time when we used to blindly pick up any item from a store and not pay attention to the materials the item was made from, the place in which the item was grown or produced, or even whether the company producing the item contributes to worker rights, abuses and or environmental deterioration, feels very distant. Maybe we can't even remember those days anymore. Our lives change when we start paying more close attention to the smaller details, when we begin to make more complex connections to events in our lives, and what appeared to be simple is no longer simple. Even though we may try to revert back to our old ways of ignorance, we can't help but be faced by reality. This realisation happens at various points in our lives, sometimes as children, sometimes as adults. This realisation also happens within various contexts, realising the toxicity of a relationship that was pretty much dead, realising the animal rights abuses of the dairy and meat industry, realising the dangers of walking by yourself at night, particularly as a woman, realising the political corruption in your home country. Whatever the realisation is and whenever it happens, our perspective of the world, the complex world and the societies we live in change for, in most cases, the better. Transitioning from a vegetarian to a vegan had a much larger impact on my spiritual journey than my transition from meat-eating to vegetarianism, despite this transition taking place at the age of seven, 
when children often struggle to change their diets. I would attribute this to my cultural and religious values that compelled me to stop eating meat because from a young age, I was able to understand that the chicken I was eating was in fact alive before they arrived on my plate, ready to eat. However, when I made the decision to transition to veganism at the age of 19, despite the transition being easy in terms of my diet already primarily being plant-based, I had to make a larger effort to change my perspective as I previously believed that vegetarianism was enough to meet my core value of animal rights protection. When I finally realised that vegetarianism didn't meet my morals to the point that I was comfortable, I'm in a series of realisations after becoming a vegan made me understand that veganism meant much more than having a plant-based diet. I understood that my decision to become a vegan was not only morally correct for myself, but also would be the beginning of a journey that would help me transform to a version of myself that I long desired for. With veganism came the beginning of a journey full of realisations of the realities of the world that I live in, particularly the human societies and how capitalism has driven us to a state of despair how we've put human gain before any other organism and how Earth, the bearer of all life on this planet, has been commodified into a lifeless resource bank created just for human benefit. For me, to feel more in tune with my spiritual values, I needed to make changes in the ways in which I consumed goods and services, but also how I processed knowledge and utilised it as a tool for transformation instead of being overwhelmed with what I was learning. One of the biggest changes I had to make was with my dietary consumption. But straight after was my contribution to the fast fashion industry and how much I could change my consumption patterns within my own budget. The beginning of Mindful of Everything really signposted the beginning of these series of changes that I saw within myself. Because I started to actively research into the harsh reality of the fast fashion industry and the extent to which my favourite brands back then would put worker rights, non-human animal rights and environmental protection on the line for monetary benefits. I could no longer access these brands that were catered to my budget because I couldn't forget the abuses being allowed by these corporations. Fast track to the present day and I have been able to leave those brands behind whilst also discovering new ones but I still have a long way to go. My consumption pattern of fast fashion pieces has changed in a sense of buying pieces that I know will last and that I'll use on a regular basis. However, most sustainable fashion is still well beyond my reach due to the expense of each product, which makes the company economically unsustainable for me to purchase from in the long term. Therefore, the most sustainable option right now is to buy from companies that provide vegan and recycled clothing and accessories but also buy things I can share with my mum and sister who have a similar fashion taste as my own. Apart from reducing consumption, ensuring your consumption is of natural materials is the next important factor in improving your consumption patterns and your choice of natural fibres or even synthetic ones if you are unable to opt for natural ones can be based on multiple factors that are in line with your core values. You may choose a material that suits your sensitive skin that has minimal greenhouse gas emissions, that is of plant origin and not animal, that has been produced by garment workers who have been paid a fair price and who work in a safe environment, that is long-lasting and of low maintenance, 
that is perhaps expensive so that you can wear the piece to a special occasion, or one that is affordable and fits for everyday usage. Whatever your choice is, keeping in mind what you value in life and prioritising those corporate values that match your personal values to the extent in which you feel most comfortable, because unfortunately not everything you value will also be valued by your favourite companies, will really help you to be more mindful about your consumption. Aligning your personal values to corporate values can be a very gruelling task, especially when you don't have a big budget and enough time to do your own research. As the fashion industry undergoes radical changes to meet sustainability and ethical standards put in place by both governments and consumers themselves, this task of alignment has become even more difficult, as a consumer is now left with even more options to look through and assess in their own time. One such task is choosing what sort of materials we should choose and avoid when purchasing fashion items, even by companies that we feel align best to our personal values. One such material that I have come to a conclusion about is silk, a natural material that embodies elegance and culture, but one that has left people like myself in confusion over the ethics of the material. Silk production and weaving originate from ancient China. The earliest known examples of silk weaving date to 2700 BCE and originate from the site of Chenchangshu. Silk is an animal fibre produced by certain insect larvae for building cocoons and webs. In commercial usage, silk is mostly sourced from the cocoons of domesticated caterpillars of several moth species of the genus Bombyx, also known as silkworms. The Chinese were able to identify that the cocoons of silkworms can be spun and woven into a luxurious material that will soon become an essential part of the Chinese rural economy. A single silk cocoon can produce a 0.025mm thick thread that can stretch to over 900 meters long. Several filaments are twisted together to make a thick enough thread to be used to weave the material and then be dyed and painted with natural materials such as powdered silver, powdered clamshells and inks from vegetable matter. Sericulture, which is a production of silk and rearing of silkworms for this purpose only, has been dated to 3600 BCE, and this soon became a key source for income for small farmers in ancient China. As weaving techniques advanced, so did the desire to own this precious material across the empires of the ancient world. Silk became China's most valuable export, and this gave the trading network the name of the Silk Road that connected East Asia to Europe, Africa, the Middle East and India. It also included the Indus civilization, where little was known about their language, but contemporary archaeological evidence suggests trading networks between the civilization and ancient China. Artifacts of luxurious clothing, fans, wall hangings and even paper from these regions can be traced back to the Chinese origins of silk. However, some accounts show that 2000 BCE India had adopted sericulture and silk production and the country was selling their own raw silks and silk clothing to Persia. Japan followed suit a few centuries later. Persia then became a centre of silk trade with silk dyeing and weaving also taking part in Syria, Egypt and some European countries. Fast forward to the current day, China is still the world's largest silk supplier and India is the second largest producer of silk and silk products. Due to the rich history of silk production, it's expected that silk will be of cultural significance for both of these countries. Speaking for myself, Hinduism classes silk as a holy material, 
and is used for many rituals, prayers and ceremonies, such as weddings. When you visit Hindu temples, you will see, at least in India, people donating silk materials and saris to the temples for the murtis of gods and goddesses to be draped in these revered clothes. Silk is gifted to others on special occasions and silk is worn as a statement of wealth and prosperity, but also culture and stories interwoven by artisans to create timeless masterpieces. However, what appears to be of aesthetic, cultural, religious and sentimental value has a darker origin than many of us have failed to acknowledge in the past and even in the present, one that questions whether the beauty of silk can really be preserved by the abuse of both human and non-human organisms that happens in the production of this material. When silkworms mature into moths inside of their cocoons, they are able to secrete a fluid that eats through the cocoons and allows a moth to emerge and fly away to continue on their life cycle. However, when doing so, silk moths end up damaging the cocoons the silk industry relies on. Therefore, domesticated silkworms, the most common species being the Bombyx mori, are only allowed to live up to the stage of being within the cocoons when they are boiled or sun-dried alive to keep the silk cocoon intact. Despite each cocoon providing a silk thread of up to 900 metres in length, it can take about 2,500 cocoons to produce approximately a pound of silk fabric. 2,500 silkworms are required to be killed to retrieve enough material to be woven into silk. While silkworm delicacy may exist in some parts of East Asia, most silkworms killed in the process are discarded as waste material, leaving people to question whether silk can truly be sustainable as a natural and biodegradable fibre, let alone ethical. Surprisingly, silk has a worst environmental impact relative to other natural fibres, having the highest greenhouse gas emissions per kilogram than any other fashion material, including synthetics. Production of silk requires substantial amounts of energy, with silk farms needing to be at controlled temperatures and harvesting of cocoons requiring hot water and air. Most silk farms depend on the cultivation of mulberry leaves and can exacerbate water scarcity issues, especially in countries such as India. Silk that isn't certified by the Global Organic Textile Standard, GOTS, will most likely use harsh chemicals, large doses of fertiliser and dyes that can pollute waterways and impact the biodegradability of the fabric. This then leads into issues around violations of environmental and human rights of workers who are exposed to these harmful chemicals and or who work under contracts often referred to as modern-day slavery. A 2003 report by Human Rights Watch found that around 350,000 children are involved in silk production in India. Children are working at every stage of silk production, from boiling cocoons to carrying baskets of mulberry leaves and embroidering saris. Children can work more than 12 hours each day, either six or all days of the week, and that too under constant mental and physical pressures of work, but also abuse by management. Children as young as five will earn from nothing to 400 rupees per month, which equates to USD $8. Children are also faced with other dangers in their working environment, such as machines and sharp needles. Vapours of sericin, one of the proteins that are produced by silkworms to create the cocoons, along with diesel fumes from machines and poor ventilation that puts children and adults at risk of respiratory diseases such as asthma. Constant exposure to hot water and chemicals often leave children and adults with blisters and raw hands 
that are also prone to infection. With over 7.9 million workers in the Indian silk industry, supply of labour is not a concern to owners of silk factories, therefore competition for these jobs is high. And since children's rights are far easier to violate than adults, employers take the opportunity to take in these unskilled and underaged workers. Children from impoverished households are desperate for any source of income and who can be paid a fraction of the wage of adult workers. To ensure child workers remain in the industry, factory owners can offer workers loans that they know the workers will be unable to pay off due to their low wages, and so workers pay off by overworking. There are many factors that play into such bonded labour, but a leading factor is the caste system, which erases the concept of social mobility and bonds lower castes such as the Dalits to poverty for generations. The report by Human Rights Watch stated that the children that they interviewed for the report within the states of Uttar Pradesh, Tamil Nadu and Karnataka were almost all bonded children and were either Dalit or Muslim. Despite Indian law prohibiting bonded child and forced labour, this is the horrid reality of many poor Indian children and adults that is a product of political corruption and prevents proper policing of working conditions. Due to the human rights abuses occurring in the silk industry, the rise of ethical silk has given consumers of silk a proposed ethical alternative to their favourite material. Ahimsa silk, also called ahimsa silk, is a proposed piece and cruelty-free silk where silk is produced without harming or killing the silkworms, whilst also protecting worker rights. Ahimsa is a Sanskrit word for non-violence, and it's a doctrine within Hinduism, Jainism and Buddhism, and it's this doctrine that has started this production of cruelty-free silk. Ahimsa silk production and commercialization is credited to a retired government officer in India called Kusuma Rajaya, who holds a patent and trademark for Ahinsa silk. Rajaya has applied his 40 years of experience in sericulture, as well as the spiritual concept of Ahinsa, to make this silk. He believes that silk can be created without killing silkworms, and so he began to weave this piece silk in 1990. But this hasn't come without challenges. Rajaya admits that Ahinsa silk production is laborious and time-consuming, compared to conventional silk production. Farmers need to wait for moths to break out of the cocoons before they can harvest them. Because of this, farmers can only produce up to 30% of silk. When we compare that to conventional silk, a single cocoon can produce up to 95% of silk. As a result, a hint of silk is expensive, and a single sari can cost up to USD $233. There are also no middlemen, so weavers get direct benefit from hint of silk sales, and are also not exposed to the sorts of hazards found in conventional silk factories. Rajahai also claims Ahinsa silk will be more popular for Western countries and is yet to be picked up by the Indian market. But because of the rising popularity, many Western companies take advantage of this cruelty-free production and wrongfully claim their silk to be Ahinsa silk, a form of green and ethics washing. Because there is no genuine way to distinguish between conventional silk and Ahinsa silk. There are multiple ways in which ahimsa silk can be produced. Airy silk is produced by castor plant-fed domesticated silkworms that are not harmed in the process. The sara silk, most popular in the Indian states of West Bengal and Bihar, is produced by wild tasar silkworms that are allowed to leave the cocoons before the cocoons are harvested from forests. Some companies also use the term wild silkworms to let customers know that the worms that the silk has been produced from are in fact free-range, 
So they don't live in the wild, but live in an environment that imitates their natural habitat. On average, wild silkworms produce silk fabrics that are more durable and the material tends to have less chemicals on them compared to conventional silk. But every farm that produces silk from wild silkworms doesn't have to be Ahinsa silk. The idea behind Ahinsa silk is one that everyone hopes was the idea from the very beginning. It makes sense to wait for the moths to leave the cocoons before the cocoons can be harvested. However, that was not the case thousands of years ago and it's clearly not the case now that the demand has risen. Compared to other textiles, silk only makes up 2% of the global textile market, yet it's worth 20 times more than what cotton is, for the same volume of fabric produced. That makes the 2021 silk market value up to $17 billion. Rajaya knows that Ahinsa silk can be created, yet even he admits that there are many challenges in producing this non-violent alternative. If silk companies can produce larger volumes of silk material at a faster rate and also cheaper, why would they convert to Ahinsa silk? Additionally, there have been many reports of Ahinsa silk production treating silkworms and moths in the same ways as conventional silk production does. Rajayad produces cocoons from the Sericulture Federation, but a report by Beauty Without Cruelty in India found that once moths emerge from the cocoons, Male and female moths are kept separate for three hours to allow them to mate, and then females are segregated and placed in trays to lay the eggs, whilst the males are put into a refrigerator, so are kept in semi-frozen conditions, and are brought out again to mate as more females continue to hatch. Once the ability of male moths to mate is diminished, they are thrown away into a bin, and many are crushed in the process. Once female moths have laid their eggs, they were immediately crushed into a mixer and their remains are checked with a microscope for any diseases. If any diseases are detected, the eggs that they have laid are also discarded. Healthy eggs are then sold to silk farmers who rear the caterpillars into silk caterpillars to produce cocoons and the cycle is repeated. Ahinsa silk only looks at the ethics of production right when the moths emerge because then the cocoons haven't been boiled or sun-dried with the moths inside. The process of selective breeding and the cruelty of discarding both male and female moths is not considered in the production of Ahinsa silk. The moths that emerge are also not healthy moths. They have been bred in captivity for a long enough period that has prevented many to fly or even move properly. Therefore their lifespan after hatching is not nearly as long as moths in the wild. Bombyx mori in the wild have now gone extinct and can only be found in silk farms. Even with silk such as the sar, which uses wild moths, comes to the questions of ethics in the commodification of silkworms, and whether it's fair to make luxurious material out of the hours of hard work that silk moths put in to create cocoons for themselves. Just recently, scientists confirmed that fish are indeed sentient beings, yet the evidence for sentience within insect species has long been found. Despite the fact limited research exists for evidence showing silkworms and moths do feel pain, there are multiple studies that show that earthworms, bees and other moths produce chemicals similar to those produced by the human brain when we feel pain. A report by Swedish scientists back in 1979 found that earthworms produce encephalins and beta-endorphins that helps them to respond to sensations of pleasure and pain. The production of these chemicals is believed to help earthworms endure pain. 
The scientists also found that these substances were found within the immunoreactive nerves in the cerebral ganglion, which is earthworm's equivalent to a brain. To what extent and the nature of the pain earthworms experience hasn't been explained in the report, but the fact that earthworms can distinguish pain from pleasure is hard evidence for sentience in worms. A study by Bates and et al. in 2011 found that agitated honeybees were able to anticipate bad outcomes after experiencing distressing events by displaying pessimistic cognitive biases, similar to humans exhibiting negative emotions after a distressing event. A study in 2008 found that moths can remember things that they learned as caterpillars before metamorphism. The scientists made tobacco hornworm caterpillars smell the pungent ethyl acetate gas, and then gave each caterpillar an electric shock whenever the caterpillars would go near any object smelling of the gas within large canisters. The caterpillars soon learned to avoid objects that smelt of this gas because they understood that smelling the gas would result in a shock. Once the caterpillars built their cocoons and emerged as moths, despite their bodies and brains undergoing vast changes, the moths avoided ether acetate when the researchers gave the moths a choice between fresh air and air smelling of the gas. The moths had learned not to go near the gas, even as adults, and this ability to remember transfers to many other important things a moths need to remember, such as which poisonous flowers to avoid, and the safest areas to lay their eggs. Just because we cannot understand the ways in which insects, and even animals, betray their detection of pain and any negative emotions after a distressing and painful experience, doesn't mean they cannot experience pain that we mammals can experience. Silk is a material that is symbolic of human incompetence in attempting to acknowledge that every emotion, every feeling, is valid. Regardless of whether these emotions are of a human's or a silk moth's. Whether silkworms and moths feel pain the way we do is an invalid question, because a right to live healthy lives should be granted to all walks of life. At first I was left divided in moving away from silk and the culture tied into the material. The same way that I was left divided when I chose to omit dairy from my diet. Just like silk, milk and honey that are both animal products that I had to give up as a vegan are considered holy substances that are present in all Hindu ceremonies and offered to God in festivals and temple visits. When I first turned down an offering containing milk by my mum, She felt hurt and said how I shouldn't have turned down something that was so religious and so pure. It was in that moment that I realised that my decision to leave animal products behind was one that would remove a part of culture away from me. A culture with an ancient history and one that I'm very proud to be part of. But I also knew very well that my culture and my religion have given me much more than just milk, honey and silk. My Indian culture has given me morals and values that are rooted in righteousness and ahimsa. Values that prioritise life over commodities and respect over luxury. The values that taught me from a very young age that every being deserved to live a life full of freedom and joy. Whether the being was in a form of a stationary tree, a human or a small silk moth. As a Hindu proverb from the Holy Bhagavad Gita says, traditions need to change with changing time.
what was once seen as pious and pure, does not need to be viewed in the same light, and traditions that were once upholded can indeed be dismantled and reimagined to fit the period of time we are living in now. Whilst it may be easy to boycott silk as someone living in a Western country, there are multiple factors that are in play when such a material is tied to your own cultural heritage. Silk for me is not only a part of a culture that now needs to be left behind, but has now become a symbol of hope and change. A change in cultural norms that continues to cherish the beauty of culture, but in a non-harmful way. It's difficult to address the human rights abuses that come with the silk industry, and the certainty that these abuses will transfer to other textile industries if silk demand was to decline is high. But if we can provide countries with India with alternatives that can help to stop both silk moth and worker rights abuses, change can happen. Visit mindfuleverything.com for additional resources and episodes and follow the podcast on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Mindful of Everything podcast. I hope to see you here again in the next episode.